In the fall of 1842, George B. McClellan enrolled at West Point. At 15 years old, he was the youngest person ever admitted to the prestigious military training academy. He'd go on to graduate second in his class. Certainly, the future looked promising for this protege. Early in his military career, he would serve in the Mexican-American War and the Crimean War, both of which uh, he served with, uh, with distinction. So when the American Civil War began, there were certainly high expectations for this young general. In fact, in July of 1861, the Union Army had about 50,000 soldiers McClellan hit the recruiting trail in just a matter of months. Their ranks had more than tripled to 168,000 strong. And despite some early losses in battle, McClellan had this incredible knack for keeping high morale, and his troops loved him. So it really was not a surprise that President Lincoln, not too long after, asked him to be the general-in-chief of the Union Army. Now he had a powerful army behind him. He had the credentials. He had the experience. It looked like things were going to be going great. But there was one major problem for General McClellan, and it actually is a very key thing for all soldiers. General McClellan refused to fight. You look at me kind of strange, like, what's going on? It seems central, and yet he just didn't do it. He'd organize his troops over and over and over He'd improve their position to have a tactical edge. He'd train them flawlessly until their drills were just perfected, but he would never actually engage in battle. And Lincoln would urge him over and over and over again to take action, and yet he refused because there was always something that seemed more pressing to General McClellan than engaging in the actual battle. Here he was, the greatest military mind of his generation, rendered utterly effective, or ineffective rather. Sorry, it's a big difference there. There there was one historical commentator I read this week. He put it in rather colorful terms. Here's what he said. He said, after an excruciating year of inactivity, Lincoln removed the greatest military mind of his time and eventually replaced him with a man with only half his tactical talent, but a man who would have picked a fight with a beehive buck naked. <laughs> he wanted somebody who would take action. For the history buffs in the room, that turned out to be Ulysses S. Grant, the later president who would step in and go to fight. You see, soldiers must be willing to fight. There's a parallel for the Christian life here. All Christians are called to make disciples. And we may know a lot of theology, we may serve very faithfully, we may give very joyfully, but none of these are replacements for making disciples. To be like Jesus is to make disciples. Or to state it negatively, if you aren't making disciples, you aren't like Jesus. And so this morning's sermon can be summarized in three simple words. Disciples make disciples. Disciples make disciples. If you're new with this this Sunday, you picked a great Sunday to be here because we're kicking off a new series in the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy. We're going to go verse by verse through these books and in them see a playbook for disciples. We call this expository preaching. 
It's where the main point of the passage is the main point of the sermon because I recognize that all of my authority to speak to you lands in this book alone. And so I'm going to open it up and expose the meaning of the passage and then we will work on applying it together. Now, I want you to know I am incredibly excited for this series. I've been looking forward to it for months because it was about eight months ago our pastors gathered for our annual strategic planning session. And the number one priority we left out of that strategic planning session was, number one priority, that Parkside would grow in a culture of discipleship. A culture of discipleship is where it's normal for Christians to be making disciples. That's just normal for each of us. We're discipling people who don't know Christ into the faith. We're finding baby Christians and discipling them into maturity. We're finding mature Christians and discipling them into further reproduction and multiplication. It's a culture of discipleship. And so if you want to know where we're going as a church, then simply listen carefully to this sermon series because it flows straight out of how God has led us as pastors and it's taken straight out of his word in 1 and 2 Timothy. And so as we're getting into a new book, there's a lot of backstory that's going to be important for us. Because the original context, the original audience, understanding where they're at, will help us to understand the actual meaning of the book, and then to rightly apply it to our lives. So the book is written by Paul to Timothy. Timothy is serving in the ancient city of Ephesus. That word may sound familiar to you. The book of Ephesians was written to the churches in Ephesus. And the book of Ephesians came a couple of years prior to 1 Timothy. This is a pretty influential city because you get three books of the New Testament written to the churches in Ephesus. Ephesians first, and then 1 Timothy second, and then 2 Timothy third. In fact, in the Roman Empire, Ephesus Ephesus was the second most influential city, only behind Rome. You can see a map up on the screen here uh, highlighting where the city of Ephesus was at. It was the capital city of a region known as Asia Minor that comprises much of modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was a highly educated city. It was a very affluent city. You can see there is a port city right on the Aegean Sea, and so that, of course, contributed to the affluence. It's it's a kind of a center of hub and uh, of trade and, and that sort of thing. But being a port city also made Ephesus a multi-ethnic city and a very religiously diverse city. Ephesus was known for its aqueduct system. You can see the picture of those aqueducts there is how they transported water. They were pumping water, some of these aqueducts, from more than six miles away. And what these are is like a stone trough. It's about two feet wide by two feet deep, pumping more than 60 liters of water per second. It's impressive. In the city of Ephesus, you would have found the famed Library of Celsus. You see a facade of it there, the third largest library in the world at this time. It contained more than 12,000 scrolls. And in a world prior to the printing press, that's quite an accomplishment. Major, major city. In Ephesus would have been the Temple of Artemis. Now, we don't have pictures of that because it was unfortunately destroyed, but the Temple of Artemis was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, right up there with uh, the pyramids of Giza, with the Babylonian hanging gardens. The the Temple of Artemis had a 400-foot-long terrace. So your your football field is 100 yards or 300 feet. This terrace is 30% longer. And there are these marble columns, 127 of them, 
Each of them were 60 feet tall. Now, this room is maybe 35, 40 feet tall. So consider 127 pure marble columns, 50% taller than this room. This was an incredible city to live in. And we would flock to it and say, wow, what an opportunity to be here. And yet, in this amazing city of Ephesus, there was some, there was some intense spiritual darkness. This library of Celsus that I told you about, within that library, there was a hidden, a private underground tunnel to go to a brothel so that men could go to the library appearing to be studious and educated and hide their perversity and exploitation of others. This temple of Artemis that was an engineering and architectural masterpiece was built to the goddess of fertility and childbearing. So you can only imagine the uh, prominence of sexual images all over the place in this thing. I hope I'm beginning to paint a picture for you of Ephesus as a world-class city, a center of culture and the arts, of technology, of education, and of the early church. Because Paul spent more time in Ephesus than he did in any other city. Interesting to see the center of the early church there. And what's important for us to recognize is just as there were idols of wealth and education and sexuality and false religions in that city, so we see the exact same things today, don't we? And I want to encourage you to recognize this, that the same God who spoke then still speaks to his people today. And the same gospel that changed lives then will still change lives today. And just as God's people were called to make disciples in a hostile culture then, so God's people are still called to make disciples in a hostile culture today. And Acts 19 begins to tell us a little bit about how the church was formed. Here's the first record we have in the scriptures about disciples in Ephesus. Here's what it says, Acts 19.1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Don't you love how nondescript that is? Like, how did they get there? Who evangelized these people? It's utterly anonymous to us. We don't know. Just somebody was there and said, I'm going to start telling people about Jesus. That guy in my cul-de-sac, I'm going to tell him about Jesus. The guy next to me in the apartment, I'm going to tell him about Jesus. That woman I see at the market, I'm going to tell her about Jesus. We don't know who these people were, but they were faithful Christians making disciples. There's about 12 disciples there, we're later told. And when Paul shows up, he says, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to start equipping people for ministry. And these disciples started to make disciples. And as they multiplied, they started to plant churches. These usually met in people's homes. And the archaeology tells us that oftentimes these churches were as large as 200 people meeting in a home. I told you it was an affluent city, and so what was, was normal, some of the larger homes would have a huge atrium where you could have a couple hundred people meet. Or in the back, they'd have big colonnaded gardens. These people got busy making disciples. And there were multiple churches of this size. In fact, the churches grew so rapidly that it began to threaten the business practices of those in the occult and in black magic. 
And they realized their products weren't going to be sold anymore. They got upset about it. And this is the later half of Acts 19, if you want to go back and read it. They begin to incite a mob against the Christians. And the mob met in this outdoor theater. For two hours in this theater, they just screamed, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're, they're basically in this drunken rage, yelling against the Christians, we don't like what you're doing here. This theater is interesting. It, it can seat 24,000 people. Now, if you want a point of comparison, Gamebridge Fieldhouse, where the Pacers play, that seats 18,000 people. 50, or uh, not 50% more, 25% more people in this theater than where the Pacers play. All of them gathered in a rage against these disciples who are making disciples, planting churches, and seeing the gospel go forward. So if anybody had reason for despair that maybe they were opposed and things weren't going so well, it would certainly have been the Christians in Ephesus. And that's instructive for us as well, because I think it's easy for us to sit around and, and see where America's at today and say, well, we're, we're post-Christian. The great de-churching is happening. The culture is so secular. What are we going to do about it? I simply want to say, we're going to pay attention to the Word of God. And we're going to see what Paul's strategy was here. He says, I'm going to go into a dominant city that's filled with greed, with pride in our uh, education. He says, we're going to go where there's sexual idolatry, where there's religious confusion, and we're going to start making disciples. Friends, I want you to see that the church can flourish in cities and in cultures that are hostile to the gospel. So we need not despair, but we do need to get busy making disciples because disciples make disciples. Book of 1 Timothy, you're beginning to piece together, wasn't written to a specific church, but to a person, Timothy, stationed there in Ephesus. Most scholars believe it's because the church was multiplying so rapidly that Paul would rather choose to write to one individual who had uh, oversight and influence over multiple churches, and he could direct them, here is the playbook for disciples to be reproduced. Interesting to see how this developed. This book is written a mere 10 years after the first church was planted. Like These people weren't messing around. They understood, just like soldiers have to fight, we got to make disciples, and we're going to get to it. So that's a little backstory that helps you come to this book in a more informed way and understand what is it that we're reading here. Well, let me take four minutes and give you an overview of the contents of 1 Timothy. It's all been backstory. I want to give you a quick flyover of the contents before we dive, in, dive into verses 1 and 2. All right, 1 Timothy, you're going to see Paul write to Timothy and say, here's how the life of the believer should be impacted. You're going to hear him say, this matters that your doctrine is pure, because if you're going to make disciples, you've got to recognize the true Jesus, not just a Jesus of your imagination, the Jesus you want to exist. Doctrine matters a ton. He's going to say to watch your life very closely, because Satan wants to derail you to get you to move away from Jesus and what you love the most. And you're going to reproduce who you are, not just the things you know in your mind. Next week, we're going to see that Paul would say that love is the true mark of spiritual maturity. 
Look at the individual life of the believer. But 1 Timothy goes beyond just the individual life of the believer, but to see the life of the whole church as being really significant. Chapter 5 is going to tell us how younger people should relate to older people, how we should care for widows, the high value of unity in the church and not fighting over stupid stuff. Chapter 3 is going to talk about how the church should be organized, led by pastors, served by deacons, so that discipleship can continue to go forward and the church can be mobilized. In fact, right in the middle of the book, Paul's going to say, this is actually the point of why I was writing. So look back at 1 Timothy with me, right at the end of chapter 3, right before chapter 4 starts, and Paul's going to say, here's why I'm writing to you. And notice, it's not just about you and your personal Jesus, it's about your life in the church. 1 Timothy 3, 14, here's what he says. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. He's saying your life as a gathered assembly, your life in the church matters immensely. And first and second Timothy are sometimes called the pastoral epistles, along with the book of Titus, because they're written to pastors. And I don't have really a problem with that term per se, but I do think it's important we recognize these letters aren't just for pastors. These are for the whole church to understand here's how we're supposed to behave in the church of God, to be a disciple and to make disciples. And to recognize that the New Testament has absolutely no category for a Christian who doesn't have a meaningful commitment to a local church. In America, we've gotten comfortable with this idea of like a free agent Christian that kind of goes here sometimes, kind of goes there sometimes, but isn't committed to a particular church. And the New Testament knows nothing of such a category. First Timothy is going to tell us about the life of the believer, the life of the church, and also thirdly, life on mission. Chapter two, we'll talk about the importance of prayer, praying for our governmental officials, Paul would later talk about life and doctrine and how that applies to unbelievers, not just in the church as well. So he's saying, individually, you've got to think about what it means to be a disciple. Corporately, you've got to think about how do we make disciples, and then we are sent out on mission to go reach the lost and disciple them as well. In other words, if we were to take some core values and try and overlay them on the book of 1 Timothy, you might say it's something like, let's go delight in the gospel individually, and then let's grow through relationships together, and then let's go serve our community, and let's be sent into the world. You might say something like that. See, we're we're just pulling these ideas straight out of Scripture. The whole of it could be boiled down to this. Disciples make disciples. And what Paul gives here in 1 and 2 Timothy is this clear, tactical playbook. Some of you will remember when Peyton Manning was the quarterback of the Colts, and he was known for his pre-snap audibles and calls. He's, you know, raising his arms all over the place. He's yelling, Omaha, 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 and and nobody can figure out, like, is this real? Is this fake? What does it actually mean? Aren't we glad Paul didn't write like Peyton Manning? (laughs) He says very clearly, here's what you're supposed to do. And so we've got our discipleship pathway out there in the back, and it gives big picture ideas of discipleship. Membership to Christ, membership to his church, maturity in Christ, mission for Christ. Those are like a coach in the offseason saying, we're going to run the ball more this year. Big picture ideas. 
First Timothy is the actual playbook saying, this is the running play we're going to do. This is the passing play we're going to do. This is the blitz that our defense is going to run. It tells us specifically, here's how we take a step forward. From 1 Timothy 1, 1 and 2, there are three actions for all disciples. I'm going to take our remaining time to look at three actions of disciples from 1 Timothy 1, 1 and 2. Here's the first action. Disciples follow. Disciples follow. I hope you look back at your copy of God's Word. Keep it open all morning. Here's what we read in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. You see, Paul starts right out of the gate by declaring he is a follower of Jesus. This is the first step for a disciple. When Jesus showed up on the scene, what did he tell his disciples? Come, follow me. To be a disciple means to be a learner. We say you learn the words of Jesus and the ways of Jesus. What he said, what he taught, how he lived, and you go and emulate it. And in Paul, we find perhaps the most famous conversion in all the Bible where he first became a follower of Jesus. Prior to being a Christian, Paul was known as Saul. He was what we would today call a religiously motivated terrorist because he hated Christians. He killed Christians. And then God's sovereign grace broke into his life on the Damascus Road and God commanded Paul to turn and follow him. And Paul did a complete 180. Instead of hating and killing Christians, he became one, and he strengthened Christians, and he persuaded others to become Christians. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian. You've been considering it or thinking about it. I want you to think about Paul for just a moment, because I think sometimes people who aren't Christians think, boy, to be a Christian is a certain type. You got to think a certain way. You got to talk a certain way with this kind of weird Jesus y churchy language. You got to dress a certain way. I don't know if I'm that type. Like maybe Jesus seems all right, but these Christians, they seem kind of weird, to be honest. Maybe it's like saying, I might like the city, but I really don't like city people. Can I go to the city without hanging out with them? Or maybe you're asking, like, I might like going to a NASCAR race, but I sure don't want to hang out with NASCAR people. Maybe you feel that way about Christians a little bit. Let me just remind you that if you're not a Christian, to be a disciple, to be a Christian, is to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, and to look like Jesus. Not a particular type that you see in the American church. Believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, look like Jesus. That's what it is to be a Christian. And I would remind you that that heaven will be far more diverse than the immigration records at Ellis Island. Far more diverse, okay? You're going to find in heaven, you're going to find rednecks and you're going to find hipsters. You're going to find urban elites and you're going to find suburban soccer moms. You're going to find people with PhDs and you're going to find elementary dropouts and you're going to find people from villages that never learn to read or write or even get their language written down at all. So if you think you have to look a certain way to be a Christian, let's check that at the door. That's not what the Bible's calling to you to. He said, basically, the Bible says this, you don't have to look a particular part, but you do have to believe in a particular person, namely Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross It means that you must believe to follow Jesus that he came to this earth, he lived a perfect life that none of us lived. And because we didn't live a perfect life, there's a consequence for that. 
The Bible calls sin, and the consequence of sin is death. And Jesus died a death on the cross so that you wouldn't have to die. If you believe in him, you could have eternal life. And he didn't stay dead, but you believe he rose from the dead to conquer death and secure an eternal home in heaven for you. That's what it means to be a Christian. You must believe in him, and you must follow him. You turn, instead of following yourself, and I'm going to turn, I'm going to follow Jesus now. The Bible word for that is repent. It means to turn, to change my mind, turn it to Jesus, change my actions, turn and follow Jesus. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, here's what he says. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That's what I've just been explaining to you. Repent, turn, and believe in Jesus. It's important we understand the Bible has no category at all for someone who claims to be a Christian but isn't following Jesus. That's not something you find in the Bible. You might find it in America, but not in God's Word. What we would call that, someone who claims to be a Christian but doesn't follow Jesus, is a fake Christian, a phony Christian, not a real Christian. You might talk the talk, but you don't walk the walk. Your relationship with Jesus might be like my relationship with exercise. I can talk a lot about it, but when it comes down to it, I dabble in it for a month or two and then find something else better to do. And six or eight months later, when I start to find a little more in the midsection and the belt's not fitting so well, maybe things aren't going exactly the way I want in life, I start to dabble again. I've not given myself to exercise And I think there's a lot of people out there. It might be you this morning. You can talk the talk. You know some Bible stories. You know some Jesus-y stuff. But you haven't actually followed Jesus and given your entire life to following him. Friend, I want to say this morning, if you're a fake Christian, today can be the day that you stop being a fake Christian. You turn, you follow Jesus. Talk to me afterwards, because I'd love to baptize you next week. Because that's the first step of a believer. I follow Jesus, and I get baptized and tell everybody else, I'm serious, I'm following Jesus now. And I'll help you get connected to a community group where you can grow in your faith. Disciples follow Jesus. And Paul makes it abundantly clear, that's what I'm doing. But that's not all disciples do. The second point of discipleship, disciples reproduce. Yes, they start by following Jesus, but they also reproduce. Look at the beginning of verse 2. What does Paul say? To Timothy, my true child in the faith. What's that tell us? It says Paul reproduced himself. Paul discipled Timothy. Kind of stating the obvious right there. He calls him his true child in the faith. There's a clear love for Timothy. And this language that Paul uses of Timothy here in 1 Timothy 1-2 is not isolated at all. It's all over the scriptures. Let me show you just a couple of examples of how Paul continually speaks of Timothy in this way. Philippians 2.22. You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he served with me in the gospel. He's my son in the faith. Or 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. And that verse is particularly interesting because, yes, it says the, the father, son, the child language there, but notice what it says at the end. Paul sent Timothy to the Corinthians to remind them of Paul's way of life. 
How could Timothy know Paul's way of life unless Paul had welcomed Timothy into his life and done life together? And Timothy had seen Paul respond in a number of circumstances, how he taught God's word, how he lived out God's word, how he prayed to the Lord, how he made disciples. Do you notice how that discipleship is being reproduced there? We can look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2. We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. In other words, Paul says to Timothy, you're not merely a son, but you're maturing in your faith. You're becoming a brother and a trusted co-worker. He's growing. He's maturing. Maybe you cap it off with one final one, Philippians 2, 22, or verse 20 rather. Paul says, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Friends, can I ask you, do you have someone in your life who would speak of you in this way? Is there somebody who would look at you and say, that's my spiritual dad? That right there, she's my spiritual mom. Disciples make disciples. It's not just the example of Paul. This is the clear teaching of Jesus. He shows up, Mark 4, verse 19, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You used to fish for fish, now you're going to fish for men. To be my disciple means you're going to reproduce. To what he said at the beginning of his ministry, and then he bookends it at the end of his ministry. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. What's he say? Go make disciples. First of those who aren't Christians, when they become Christians, we'll baptize them, because that's the first step, and then teach them to obey everything I've told you. Disciples make disciples. Maybe you say, Justin, it it sounds kind of good what you're saying. I don't exactly know what it means to make a disciple. That feels a little bit churchy, a little weird to be honest. Can you give me a definition? I'm glad you asked. It's great when your questions line up with my notes. Here's a simple one I've enjoyed from Mark Dever. Here's what he says. Discipling others is doing deliberate spiritual good to help them follow Christ. You look around and say, who in my life can I do deliberate spiritual good to help them follow Christ? Now, that, that quote is taken from his book called Discipling. It's recommended. It's in the bookstore. You may want to grab that on the way out this morning or hop on Amazon and get it, but it'd be a great resource if you want to grow in this area. Maybe we ask, does Paul tell us exactly how he made disciples, how he reproduced himself, how he did deliberate spiritual good to help them follow Christ? Good news is he does tell us in the book of Acts chapter 20. So you remember Acts 19 is where the church in Ephesus is founded. In Acts 19 and 20, you're talking about the life of the church in Ephesus. And in this section of Acts 20, Paul's getting ready to leave Ephesus, and he's reminding the Ephesian believers, here's how I discipled you. Here's what he says. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. He lived with Timothy. He lived with the people there in Ephesus. Maybe not in the same home or same apartment, but he lived among them. 
He says, we shared in the tears. We shared in the trials. Yes, I instructed you publicly, but also from house to house. We're gathering over God's word. So if you look at what Jesus said, he says, as you're going, make disciples. As you go, while you are going, make disciples. And Paul said, I did the exact same thing. We shared life as we're going through the tears, we made disciples. As we're going through the trials, we made disciples. As we gathered in homes, we made disciples. You might imagine these Ephesian believers gathering, and and over the dinner table, they talked about how they were evangelizing their neighbors. And at the pickleball pickleball courts, they encouraged each other towards self-control. I see you pickleballers. At the doctor's office, They reminded each other that God is both good and sovereign. At the assisted care living facility, they reminded each other that heaven is far better than any earthly healing. As they were going, they make disciples. And as we go, we make disciples. So let me suggest four practical ways to think about making disciples as you go. Four ways to make disciples. Number one, I want to encourage you to embrace the ordinary. Embrace the ordinary. As you go, make disciples. Every family I've ever encountered has laundry to do. How could you embrace the ordinariness of laundry for the sake of making disciples? Maybe you've got a friend. You're going to say, hey, I'm going to be doing laundry about 10 o'clock tonight once the kids are down. Can I call you? And can we just pray for one another on the phone while I'm folding the clothes? Embrace the ordinary. Maybe you've got kid events, and you're going to different school plays or soccer games, and and you've got hours on the sidelines with people. You're going to be there. How do you infuse discipleship and caring for one another and not merely talking about the weather and the cults, but something of eternal significance? Maybe you've got your regularly scheduled seniors night over at Iguana's, and yes, you can just hang out, And yes, you can talk about what you're planning to do the rest of the evening, but you can embrace the ordinary with intentional discipleship. Maybe you're having people over to watch the Colts this afternoon. You could say, man, I'm going to start inviting unbelievers into this Colts gathering so that I can be seeking to introduce them to other Christians and inviting them to Nerf Wars this Friday night. There's an intentionality of discipleship in the ordinary. But secondly, don't just embrace the ordinary. Seek focused gatherings. Seek focused gathering. Gather for the specific purpose of discipleship. You might say, hey, this week I want to get together with another brother or sister. I want to read Acts 19 and 20 and get a better grasp on how this church in Ephesus got started because that's going to help me understand God's word. Maybe you want to start reading through the book of 1 Timothy. Maybe you want to go get one of those scripture journals and read it with somebody. Maybe you pick up that book on discipling I referenced before. The new bulletin we have this week, it's got some discussion questions at the bottom. Maybe it's good for you to slow down and think about those reflection questions. Seek focused gatherings. I realize you can't do that with 100 people. We've all got so many hours in a week. But you could do it with one or two, maybe a third. Maybe you meet once a month, but seek focused gathering. Third way to make disciples practical way, invite with purpose. Invite with purpose. See, what we want to do is we we want to make disciples of all ages, and sometimes there's people that I'm already friends with, and it's easy for me to invite them. I spend a lot of time with them. 
And it would be totally normal for me to say, hey, do you think we could meet for breakfast one day this week? But we want to be bringing others into our discipleship processes as well. So, boy, I want to invest in you. And this might feel a little awkward because we don't know each other very well. But somebody has to go first. Somebody had to be the first one to make disciples in Ephesus when there was only 12 disciples. And somebody's got to reach out and say, you know what? We have a bond in Christ. We're members of Christ and members of this church. We've committed to care for one another spiritually. And even though it might feel slightly awkward, I want to invite you to read the book of 1 Timothy with me. That might be hard for you to lean into, that third one, embrace, uh, invite with purpose. But maybe you should circle it right there and start praying over who should I invite with purpose this week. Fourth, finally, modify your plan. Modify your plan. Here's what I know. Every time I try to get busy doing something for God, plans change, things change, and a lot of times it blows up in my face. I thought we were going to do this for a while, and then all of a sudden I got sick the first week, and you got sick the second week, and your kid got sick the third week, and it's been a month and we haven't gotten together yet. Can I get an amen? That happens sometimes, right? So we're going to be willing to modify our plan and say, disciples make disciples. We're going to persist. And if it has to look different in this semester, that's okay. But we are not going to be dissuaded from making disciples. You see, when we open the book of 1 Timothy, what is clear is that Paul has discipled Timothy. The call is for disciples to make disciples. They must reproduce. They must have sons and daughters in the faith. But the second half of verse 2 actually goes a step further. What it says is we're not just going to reproduce babies in the faith, but actually believers growing to maturity in their faith. Look back at verse 2. This is the third point, by the way. Disciples strengthen. Disciples strengthen. Verse 2 says this, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy, you're my child in the faith. I, we've, I've discipled you, and now I am strengthening you with grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, when Paul writes to Timothy, there's real meat to his letter that should strengthen him. It's as if Paul knows that living the Christian life is hard, that making disciples takes energy. And he says, Timothy, you're going to need some spiritual protein here, man. When our kids, my elementary age kids, when they have a big week of tests at the school, do you know what happens? The elementary principal emails us and says, hey, there's going to be some tests this week, and it would be great if you could get your kids a really good breakfast. Get them some protein. Get them some eggs. Get them some thick sliced bacon. What Paul is saying here is spiritually, you need a good breakfast so that you can give your spiritual kids a good breakfast, so they can have some protein to sustain them through the week. And I think sometimes we talk about discipleship, and what we have in mind by discipleship is little more than two Christians sharing a donut. Now, I like Christians, and I like donuts, but discipleship goes far beyond what a Boston cream donut can do for you. It's meant to actually strengthen you in your faith, to give you real spiritual protein. I think some of the ways we hear this weak American discipleship manifested is in phrases like these. We'll be in the middle of a conversation and you'll hear things like, hey, you got this. Stay strong. Don't give up. You're stronger than this thing. 
that's entirely centered on the person instead of the God that the person is following. That ends up being man-centered discipleship instead of God-centered discipleship, as if you're supposed to follow your heart instead of following Jesus. For us to be disciples who strengthen would mean then that we lean into other verses, perhaps Philippians 4.19, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Maybe you don't got this, but there's a God who will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. Or maybe you need to lean into 2 Corinthians 12 and have the courage to remind someone that Paul was in a severe affliction and God said to him, my grace will be sufficient for you. Friend, I don't understand everything you're going through right now, but God has promised that his grace will be sufficient. Or perhaps Ephesians 6 and verse 10 that John read earlier, a charge to one another. Hey, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Friend, put on the whole armor of God because Satan's coming after you right now and I'm praying for you and I want to encourage you to put on the, the belt of truth and grab the shield of faith and cling to the helmet of salvation. That's what it looks like for disciples to strengthen one another. There's three words there in 1 Timothy 1-2 at the end. Grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, mercy, peace. If I could just state the obvious, what's right in front of you. Paul doesn't say, Timothy, fuel up on grit. He says, fuel up on grace. He doesn't say, rely on your man strength, though, young Timothy, to get it done. He says, no, Rely on God's mercy to keep you going. He doesn't say, persist in your personal willpower, Timothy. He says, no, persist in the peace that Christ has brought to you. Paul is strengthening Timothy as he goes. And to strengthen others, you yourself must be strengthened in this way. Imagine your kids come to you in the morning and say, Mom, Dad, we got a big test at school today. We need a great breakfast. And you open up the fridge and there's no food in there. There's no milk. There's just a bunch of Mountain Dew. Like, oh man, this isn't great. So you go to the pantry. You open it up. Things packed with Swiss cake rolls and Twinkies. Oh, those are delicious. But they're not what we're looking for this morning. You see, the diet with which you strengthen yourself is the diet that you're going to pass on to your spiritual children. And you can't stock your spiritual diet with Pop-Tarts and think you're going to give your kids thick sliced bacon. And so it's critical that you yourself preach the gospel of grace to your own heart day in and day out. You go deeper into God's word. You study it. You send roots deep in the gospel yourself because who you are is who you're going to reproduce. Maybe you're sitting there saying, Justin, I, I get what you're saying. It makes sense. The fact of the matter is, I got a pantry filled with Pop-Tarts and Mountain Dew. That's my spiritual life right now. And if I got a ton of caffeine and a ton of sugar, but nothing healthy, what am I supposed to do with this? Am I still supposed to make disciples or do I got to fix me before I can go do something else? Here's what I want to encourage you to do. 
I want to encourage you to look at a brother or sister in Christ, somebody you trust, and say, man, spiritually, I'm feeling pretty hungry right now. I wonder if you and I could go get a really good spiritual meal together. Could we together open up God's word? Because I need some steak. I need some meat. I need some sustenance. I'm hungry. And together, together you strengthen one another. Maybe it's reading. Maybe it's memorizing. Hey, we're going to pick a chapter of the Bible. We're going to start memorizing an entire chapter. And I've never done anything like that, but it's stretching me in my faith. What a great step for disciples to make disciples together who are strong in their faith. Guys, let me end where I started here. End where I started. George McClellan, Civil War general, had a ton going for him, wouldn't fight. You might have a lot going for you as a Christian, but are you willing to make disciples? I pray this morning that God will strengthen you and I pray he will establish this church as a beacon of discipleship that will turn this area and this country upside down for Christ, much like God did that in the Ephesian church through normal Christians who recognize that disciples make disciples. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word that you've given to us to tell us who you are and how we're to respond. We ask that you would work mightily in our midst. We wouldn't cling to ourselves, we would cling to you. We wouldn't be impressed by our own strength, but would be absolutely awestruck by your strength. We ask that we wouldn't be filled with spiritual and religious busyness, but with strategic disciple-making. That just as we see this trajectory being handed down, that you came and made disciples, who made disciples, who made disciples, that so we would continue making disciples as well. We ask for your grace, that we wouldn't be arrogant or proud in what we've accomplished but recognize it's only because of your grace, only because of your mercy, only because of your peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.